Well, good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you have your Bibles on you, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? We've uh, we sort of started off every year the past few years with a, a message looking forward to the year ahead, where we're going just as a as a church, what we need to be about, where we need to be focused, what we need to be thinking about. And I thought it would be a good idea to do that again. And Ephesians 5 just stuck out to me as the place that we needed to go. And so that's, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed. Can you believe that it's already January? It blows my mind how fast last year went by. In fact, I was thinking about it. We're in a new, well, depends on who you talk to, I guess. Twitter likes to fight about things. They're not sure if this is the new decade or if next year will be the new decade. I don't care either way. Uh, we got a new number on our calendar. And so I was thinking back over the last 10 years, I will, I will have been married 10 years this year already. My daughter is already five. She's already smarter than I am. And I'm 30. Someone said this the other day. The year 1990 is as far back as 2050 is forward. Is that crazy or what? And so the, the new year, I think it's always a good time to refocus and make sure we have our sights set in the right direction. You know, I don't know if you, uh, if you make New Year's resolutions or not. People do. I was going to go sign up for a gym membership, not because I have a New Year's resolution, but uh, Janelle's schedule changes um, every few months, and I can actually go to the gym now. And I was driving by Diamond Hills, the gym I lived next to the other day, two days ago. Parking lot. I thought, I don't know if this is worth it. This is just not worth it. Give it a few weeks when the, when the parking lot dies down and people stop going, and that's the time to go. That's what people do when a new year comes around, though. They refocus, and they set their sights on the direction that they want to go. And so I find it important to remind myself of why we're here, what we're doing, what we're to be doing. And so that's why I went to Ephesians chapter 5. Maybe you're familiar with it. You probably are. These verses 15 through 21. It has to do with how the believer is to live. In fact, uh, that's what really the second half of Ephesians is. How we're to live. And he starts off with how we're to be thinking about things. And he sets it in the context of this, he says, evil days. And it has this idea of time that is screaming by and is filled with evil. And I thought, you know what? That's exactly where we are, isn't it? When the new year comes around, we realize just how fast and evil the days are. And so this is the place I wanted to go. So if you're in Ephesians chapter 5... I'm just going to read these verses 15 through 21 and we'll take a look at them this morning. This is what Christ has for us in his word. 
Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, there's a lot there. We're not going to be able to turn over every stone in this today. And Lord willing, we're going to start back in Romans next week and move forward now. So maybe some of you feel like we've been stuck a little bit in those verses and we're moving forward now. That's what we're doing. And Ephesians here, it's a great book. It's very Pauline, which means it smells and tastes and looks like Paul wrote it, because he did. And he has, a, he has a particular way of going about writing a letter. And we've seen it in Romans. Romans is, is almost a template for how Paul wrote his letters. And Ephesians follows it. And the way that he, the way that he does it is he, he writes the first half of a book or a letter explaining the theology. That's, that's what we've seen in Romans so far. Chapters 1 through 11 are Paul explaining the theology. And then 12 through 16 are, you could call it practical living, although I think Paul would explain that the theology is just as practical. And that's his point, is that he, he explains the theology, and then he says, based on this, this then is how we should be living. That's what he does here in Ephesians also. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, he explains, I think, what's probably some of the deepest theology in the New Testament. I don't know if you ever have conversations with somebody about um, spiritual things. You often get back to beginnings in these conversations. And when you get back to beginnings, sometimes you get back to further than beginnings, before that. That's where Paul starts Ephesians. Before the foundations of the earth. He starts way back. And he starts talking about what God was doing in the mind of God as he was deciding what things would be like. That's where Ephesians starts. So he starts with this deepest theology that you can get. And he starts explaining this, and he starts explaining what Christ has done, and he starts explaining, we saw two weeks ago, actually in Ephesians chapter 2, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and how God and his grand plan sent Christ and made us alive together with him, and now has created in us uh, as his workmanship, his poem that we would be about good works. And then he goes on to explain how all of this has caused the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles to be broken down into one universal church and all this theology. And then Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6, he starts using this language of 
walking, your conduct in life. And it's not like he's just shifted gears. It's not, well, I'm done with that. I'll move on to a different topic. What he has done is explain the deep theology of God and what we need to know about God in Christ and then explains how then we should live as a result. That's how this book is structured. That's how he often structures his books. And so we're in this section. We're sort of right here in the middle where he is talking about this idea of walking. He's used it a few times. You can see it in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, meaning based on all the deep theology that I gave you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That is, conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of what Christ has done on your behalf. He uses this word, walk, of a few times, verse 17, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It gives us the negative. Moves on in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And we're looking at a particular walk that he points to here this morning in verse 15. Wise walking. The particular walk I want to look at today from our text has to do with wise conduct. Wise living with only a short time and a dangerous path. That's what he's laid out for us here. And I think every time the calendar changes over to a new year, we more and more realize just how quick and dangerous the days are. That's why I think this is a good text for us. I mean, aren't, aren't you more keenly aware of the shortness of life? <laughs> Maybe every day, but certainly every, every new year. I remember, it wasn't that long ago, but I remember watching the ball drop December 31st, 1999, and thinking, we are experiencing, I mean, I, was, I wasn't that old, so it was a pretty major event in my life it maybe wasn't that big for some of you but we're we're experiencing a a thing that very few people get to see the changing over of of a fourth number in our in our calendar in our date right and this ball is dropping and it's suddenly a new millennium computers are going to start blowing up everywhere remember that y2k that's what was going on Thinking just how, how amazing it was that we'd made it this far into the future. Uh, the year 2000 is ancient now, isn't it? That's ancient news. I was sitting there thinking about this this week, and I'm going, there are people who were born after that date who have bachelor's degrees now. That's how fast time goes. That's how short these days are. They come quickly. And so what Paul does here in this text is he exhorts us to look how we walk. <clears throat> now, there's something here. If you have the ESV, it says, look carefully then how you walk. I think the Greek better fits to say, look how you walk carefully. I think carefully should be attached to the word walk and not to the word look. It's 
Not that big of a difference, but the the point is not how carefully we observe necessarily, but how carefully it is that we're conducting ourselves. And like I said, Paul's used the word walk a number of times in Ephesians. And and what he means by this word walk is your conduct in life. The way that you live. Probably lose this in just the day-to-day mundaneness of life. But according to Scripture, how you live is important. Did you know that? What you do matters. That's, that's almost actually kind of earth-shattering news in our nihilistic culture. But it's true that what you do matters. How you live is important. I don't think we necessarily always even believe that or at least think it, but it's true. What you do is important. And God is concerned that in recognizing that fact, you live carefully. That you live a careful life. You conduct yourself carefully. Now, if if the text ended right there and he didn't go on to explain what that looked like, we could hear this twisted in all sorts of ways and maybe think that, that we need to walk around in life on eggshells, making sure that we don't break anything or that we're going to be smitten or struck down if something goes wrong. That's not what he's talking about here, though. He gives us the definition of what it means to live carefully, what exactly that Looks like that's what these next verses are about. So let's look at them so we can see what he means by this careful walk. First, look, it's right there in that verse. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. He's referring to wisdom here in the way that we conduct our lives. And so, wisdom according to scripture, when it's talked about in the Bible, has to do with insight into what God has spoken. You want a good book on it? It's right here in the middle. It's called Proverbs. It's all about this. It's all about wisdom. In fact, the first verse there says, the purpose of this book is to know wisdom. And the biblical definition of wisdom is knowledge that is applied. The word, the word wisdom in, in, in the Hebrew is the word chokmah, and it means skill, essentially. I don't remember the text, the, the reference, but in, in, the, in the Pentateuch, when Moses is, is finding these men to work on, or no, it's, it's, uh, I think it's Solomon, actually, where he's finding these men to work on the, the temple, he looks for men with chokmah in stonemasonry, wisdom in stonemasonry. And the idea is that they have a certain set of skills, but they know how to apply it. Right? How many times have you known somebody who's been going into surgery or you've been going into surgery and you've prayed for wisdom for the doctors? You ever thought about that before? What actually am I praying for here where I'm praying for wisdom for the doctors? Well, the idea is that they have a particular knowledge, right? They've studied, hopefully. 
You seen that commercial where the do- doctor comes in and he's been on leave because he made a mistake and he says he's nervous and he doesn't know if he should be in. Pretty funny. That's what you're praying for. That Okay, this guy knows his stuff. He's done the work. He's read the books. He's, he's watched the surgeries. He's practiced it hopefully 10 million times. I'm praying that he would have the skills to be able to apply the things that he knows to do what needs to be done. That's wisdom. That's chokmah. And so when the Bible talks about wisdom, it means not necessarily an intellectual knowledge of Scripture, but it means the ability, the skill, the spiritual skill of taking what the text says that you know and have studied and be able to apply it to your life. That's what wisdom means. And so he says here, Look how you walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. Meaning what? You know what God has said, and you're able to use it and apply it in your daily living. It's a wise course of life. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is... The, the pinnacle, the crown jewel of wisdom is a fear of the Lord, a healthy reverence and awe of who he is. If you fear the Lord, then you will take his word to be important. You know somebody who you don't have any respect for? They say things all the time and you take them with a grain of salt. We should be the opposite of that with the Lord. We should fear Him, reverence Him. What He says is of utmost importance. The Creator and the Sustainer of the universe has seen fit to speak with us and tell us the way that works best to live in this life that He's created. Wisdom is being able to take that and apply it and walk carefully. That's what He's talking about. So, so the pattern of your life, believer, is to be lived knowing that God is who he says he is and having a healthy knowledge of what he's spoken and how to apply it to our lives. You can't have biblical wisdom without loving his word, knowing his word, studying his word. Wisdom doesn't just hit us and suddenly we're wise. That's how careful this walk must be. It's studied. He says we do this by making the best use of our time. Because the days are evil. And and here's where we find that the days are short, they're quick, and they're evil. That means to make the best use of your time, you have to be aware at all hours of the waking day how to make good of life in a sinful world. That takes being aware of what you're doing at all moments, that you're lucid. You ever driven somewhere before? Driven to L.A., takes six hours or so. And you get down there and you go... I don't even remember driving. 
They just zoned out for five or six hours. We can do that in just our day-to-day life, can't we? We get up, the alarm goes off. Next thing we know, we're laying down in bed, setting the alarm, going, what happened? I was on autopilot all day. We can't do that. The days are evil, and we need to make the best use of our time. They're quick. We need to have our eyes open, making good of life in a sinful world. Here's the idea of the days being evil. The the idea is that we can can experience almost, almost anything in life and have it go good or have it go evil. But because of our sinful desires, we often choose evil and there's evil in the world and and we can take any situation and not redeem it for good use. You know that to be true? Wisdom teaches us to use it properly and for good. Think about Paul, for example. Paul is an example of someone who takes an evil-filled world and uses it for good. Uh, Philippians, for example. Paul is sitting in a prison cell. Paul, who his daily life looked like not knowing where he was going to be next, where he was going to get his food from, knowing he was probably going to get hit in the face with a rock or bitten by a snake or having to swim in a cold ocean because his ship broke again. That's what he's expecting every day. And now he's in a jail cell. I don't, know about, I don't know about you. Have you ever thought about what you would do if you were in prison? I've never been to prison. I don't want to go to prison. But I've definitely thought about what I would do if I'm... First, I think the first day I would enjoy just having a room with nobody waking me up. Uh, Harper woke me up the other morning screaming. Right here, the first thing I saw, there was a spider in her ear. There was no spider in her ear, but that's what I heard. It was dark outside. And so sometimes I think, you know, a prison, you got bars, no one can come in or go out, just nice nice and peaceful. But after this first, like, two hours, I'm probably going to be salty. I'm going to be grumpy. I'm going to be complaining to every single person I see. I'm going to be explaining how unfair life is. And that's what prison's filled with. Paul, though, he's sitting in prison and he says... Oh my goodness, I've got time here with a desk and a chair and a pen and I'm going to write to all of my friends, all of my believers and, I, and, I, and I'm, going to, I'm going to exhort them in Christ and tell them how they should live and I'm going to redeem the time. It's hard for me to think that that's what I would do. But you can take the same situation and you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. But the days are evil and being the case that we often choose the wrong direction. You can find lots of evil in something like a commute, can't you? I can find lots of reasons for evil and complaining with a sink full of dishes. God wants us to make the best use of our time. Not being foolish. See? Verse 17, therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That everything you do in life matters. Every situation matters. 
And I know it doesn't always seem that way. I was standing at the grocery store the other day with the guy in front of me screaming at the cashier because his drink that should have been $3 or should have been $2 rang up as $3. I mean, he was laying into the guy because of a dollar. I've been that cashier a million times. I know what it's like. And in those situations, it's hard to think this is a situation that can be used for good and I need to be wise and understand the will of the Lord is for me to grow in this situation. Right? If you just want to lay the guy out, just be done. This is the end. This is my two-week notice. That's where we go. That's why the days are evil. That's what Paul's explaining here. Don't be foolish. Proverbs says, the, or Psalms 14 says, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He has no reverence for God. These aren't words given to us by the creator of the universe for life and godliness. In fact, the words that we have that teach us how to live come from within us. That's what the fool says. I decide what's good and what's bad. I live my life dictated by my own sinful desires. That's why Adam ate the apple. So we can't be foolish. We have to understand what the will of the Lord is and to follow Him wisely. Now here's... That's what, that's what we're to be thinking as we head out into the day. So, so far, everything we've seen in the text here is just... You're getting dressed in the morning, and this is my mindset as I move into the day. That I'm going to face things that are not fun, that are not good. I need to walk carefully, watch my steps, make sure that I'm redeeming the time and living wisely and looking for every opportunity here to glorify God. This is just in our thinking as we set ourselves. This is why I wanted to do this for the new year as we move into 2020. What should we be aiming at? Then, after this, Paul moves into what our lives should practically look like. And he starts off sort of a a strange place, doesn't he? What he's just talked about there, the, the next thing you expect from him is not to talk about drunkenness. But it makes sense in the context, and we'll, we'll explain it here. Paul's not making a diatribe about how beer is bad. That's not his point. His point here is that the Holy Spirit is good. And he's using alcohol here as, a, as an illustration, as an example of something that can control us. And so what he, what he does is he says, something here, drink wine... What happens when you're under its control is that it can lead you to do certain things. Namely, he talks about debauchery, wrong, unwise, foolish conduct, not thinking about what you're doing. When you're you're drunk, you're given over to wine's control and what typically results in drunken situations is debauchery. That's the illustration he's given. And so his point's not to talk about alcohol, but rather to talk about what kind of influence the Christian should be under. 
You shouldn't be regularly drunk with wine. You should regularly be being filled with the Holy Spirit, is what he says. We should always be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he mean by that? Does he mean that Christians aren't indwelt by the Spirit? Is, is Paul contradicting himself? Because he's told us before that we're indwelt with the Spirit. So is that what he means? And so what he means at all. That Christians are indwelt by the Spirit at regeneration. When you were saved, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, when he made you alive together with Christ, he made your heart alive, he justified you, you were indwelt with the Holy Spirit at that moment. All of him. Forever. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit came to live in you permanently. What he's talking about here with this word filling is to be under the Spirit's controlling influence. Now, people have gone wonky right there too, haven't they? We need to make sure we finish out these verses to understand what he's talking about. What does it mean to be under the Spirit's controlling influence? One author said it this way, and I thought this was very helpful. At salvation, the Christian has all of the Spirit. At filling, the Spirit has all of the Christian. I think that's good. I think that was helpful. I mean, you don't have to let us know this, but have you ever experienced being under the control of a substance and later saying to someone, I have no idea why I did that or said that? I guess that was the fill-in-the-blank talking. The Christian here is to be under the control of the Spirit, so much so that the actions we perform, the words we speak, are the actions and words of Christ. So think about it in this situation. You're at work, you're the cashier, the dude's screaming at you because of one whole U.S. dollar bill. And for some reason, you keep your cool, you calm him down, and you brighten up his day somehow. And your boss comes along and says, what in the world was that? You'd explain it in the same way. Like, I don't know why I did that or said that. I guess it was the Spirit talking. Right? That's what it means to be under the control of the Spirit. How do we... How do we get this Holy Spirit filling? Is this something we just pray for and hope that it comes? Or is it something that's connected with this wise, careful walking? Is it something that's connected to the study of this scripture and the praying every morning that he would allow us to be conscious of what we're doing so that when the evil day is approaching us and our time is short, that we would be able to use it best? I think that's it right there. Fathers, fill me with your spirit that I may be able to do and, think, do and say the things that would not ever come natural to me. That's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. And we are to always be being filled with the Spirit. It's a command, and yet it's something that we can't necessarily do ourselves. We need Him to do it for us, but we need to do the work of being in His Word to allow Him to do it for us. To be filled with the Spirit. And then what He does in 19 through 21 
is explain to us what the results of being filled are. These are not the ways that we get filled. These are the results or the actions that occur from being filled. There's a few things here. 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing. Making melody. They're the same thing, but two different words there. To the Lord with all your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What are the results of this filling? Well, those are the things that are going to happen. And so we'll look at those briefly. We're not going to go into these too deeply, but just look at them. What does it look like for a believer who is filled with the Spirit in a special way that he would be able to walk wisely every day? What does it look like? Well, he says, he goes straight to us singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. It's part of being filled to sing out in worship. Did you know that? And, and look, look at how he does it. He, he gets, the second thing he gets to is singing to the Lord. The first thing he gets to is addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's part of being filled to sing out in worship so that your brothers and sisters can actually hear you. Wow. Now some of you may say, trust me. No one wants to hear my singing voice. Have you said that before? (laughs) But that's not true. Your kids need to hear daddy singing. Your wife. Your husband. Fellow believer next to you. The, The words of the songs that we sing, the words of the psalms given to us in scripture are given to us in a particular way so that the person standing next to you You don't know their struggles. Maybe they were the one who was getting screamed at on Friday. Can hear you sing these words of hope. These gospel words that God is who he says he is, that there is hope in the world and that he is doing a work to sum up all things in Christ. People sitting next to you need to hear that. That's a result of the Spirit filling you and and making you sing songs of praise. Now, obviously that comes easier to some of us than others. I find myself singing too much sometimes. Not always songs and hymns and spiritual songs. (laughs) I was was sitting on on my bed the other day watching TV. Harper comes in the room. I had the window open. Harper comes in the room with a chair. I'm like, what is she doing? She sits it next to the window. She climbs up in the chair. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, are you going to jump out the window? What's happening right now? And she says, oh, I'm going to sing. Joy to the world. Just out the window. I mean, I guess it's Ephesians 5. I don't know if anybody wants to hear it, but some of us singing comes easier than to others. Nevertheless, it's a Result here, especially of being filled with the Spirit. That doesn't mean that just because you sing to someone, you're filled with the Spirit. But if you're filled with the Spirit, you will want to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Another thing is 
And in that same breath, the same thing you're doing should be addressed from your heart to the Lord. True worship is expressed in singing. That doesn't mean that true worship is only expressed in singing, but that we can and are designed specifically a special way by God to worship through singing. It's a result of the Spirit's work in us. The church didn't decide somehow we've got to put together an hour, hour and a half long thing every week and we don't want to hear the guy talk too long so we've got to fill it with something. And How about music? Everybody likes music. That's, that's not how this came about. It's that we were designed to sing and worship to the Lord and so that's our natural way of doing things. Look at this other one here. Verse 20. Giving thanks. That's fine, but he qualifies it. Always. And then he qualifies it again. And for everything. There's a result of being filled by the Spirit to be able to give thanks for everything. That is a recognition of the fact that everything that occurs in your life is planned and purposed by God for your good and for His glory. That doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing that happens, you respond with a giddiness and an excitement. That's not what giving thanks means. But it means your heart is set in the right spot, knowing that God is doing a particular thing in this world to bring glory to His name. It's walking wisely. That we're able to do that. Give thanks to God for anything and everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would it be in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because He is the one who stands at the right hand of God as mediator. We are able to speak to the Father because we have a great high priest standing there on our behalf. And then this last one, I think it can't get much harder than that. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this one so complicated that he goes on to explain it for the next few verses. Because you say, even my wife? Even my husband? Even my children? Even my boss? My employees? That's what he goes on to talk about down through 6, verse 9. That we're able to interact with one another and deal with one another as believers so much so that we love one another to the point of setting aside our own cares and concerns and put the other person before us. That's the, that's the picture that he gives of husbands loving their wives. He says, love your wives, verse 25, as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he do that? He gave himself up for her. When did he do that? Well, he gave himself up for her when the church was not a pretty lovable thing. That's what submitting to one another means. It doesn't mean giving yourself over to abuse. It means loving one another to the point that Christ has loved us. These are results of being filled with the Spirit. These are the results, what will happen as we carefully walk 
throughout this next year as wise, not as unwise. As wise, not as foolish. And in order to do that, we need to be in this word. Maybe this comes as a shock to you, hopefully not. But what we're going to preach this year is the same thing that we preached last year and the year before that and the year before that. Wisdom comes from here. We're not going to change over to a self-help book. This is where wisdom comes from. This is where we learn of our Savior. This is where we come to know our God. And so that's my exhortation to us as we move forward this year, that we would be a people of the book who are about Christ and who have our eyes set on the main thing. And that we would not walk blindly throughout our day, but we would make the best use of the time as wise livers. Amen? Why don't we have the ushers come forward and we'll take now the Lord's Supper. where we remember what Christ has done for us. We who were unlovable were loved to the point that God sent His only Son to die on our behalf to make us alive together with Him. And so we're going to celebrate this together. I'll, I'll pray and the, the men here will pass out the elements. Take them at your leisure and, and we'll sing one more song before we close. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that we're able to speak with you because of what Christ has done. The veil has been torn, as we learned last week, because Christ went to the cross. And that he was raised to new life and that he stands representing us in the throne room. That we can bring our cares and concerns and you hear them because you are a loving father to your children. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom to apply this knowledge of your word, Father. There's not a person in the room who who doesn't feel like their knowledge of the word is, is adequate. All of us need to learn this better, Father. Would you help us this year to be about this word? Give us the skill in applying it to our lives, Father. As we do that, as we have our eyes open, as we walk carefully, would you fill us with your spirit daily to be able to live wisely? Father, we pray the results of this would be that we would become ever more a singing church, A thankful church. A church that submits to one another out of love. Not looking to push our own agendas to bully one another, Father, but looking out for the other person's best interests because of what Christ has done, Father. Would you you build that in us through the filling of your Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.